Ladies and gentlemen, warning, spoilers ahead. It's not as if she were a, a maniac, a raving thing. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? Good evening and welcome to television. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hey. Oh, whoa. Hello. I'm Wayne Stellini. And I'm a Philip Hunting. And welcome to Fred Watch, where we view and review films, everything from the mainstream to the obscure. And welcome to our Halloween special. Joining us today is guest reviewer, Kendall Richardson. Ooh. Hello. Hey, Kendall. A spooky hello from me. Hello. Welcome back to Fred Watch. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, Yay. we're excited to have you back. Thank you. So, Kendall, you know, Halloween isn't a huge deal in Australia. It's more of a Northern Hemisphere thing. Yes. But do you acknowledge it or celebrate it? Yes, I do. I love horror films. It's part of the reason I think I'm here for this episode. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. But uh, yeah, also as a huge Michael Jackson fan, every Halloween I like to bust out the thriller video, (laughs) watch that or watch Michael Jackson's ghost short film as well and get my groove on. Or just deck up the house, go to a Halloween party, something like that. Yeah, good call. It's fun. Yeah. So Philip, how about yourself? I know you love to dress up. Mm. And I know you're not a huge fan of horror movies, Mm. so where do you sit with (laughs) celebrating Halloween? Um, So I'm going to try to keep a rather long and rambling answer short by essentially saying I didn't used to, Mm. and I actually used to be very dead against Halloween, essentially based on religious views, but also on, just to me, it was another American... You know, taking over Australian holidays and they come here and take it. No. Uh, but once I left for um, university and yes, being an art student, you get invited to Halloween parties and to be honest, any excuse to dress up. Yeah. yeah. But I see it more as an excuse just to dress up rather than Halloween itself. Yeah, I'm similar to you, Philip, and Kendall as well, really. It's not like a day that I go all out in, like I don't do the whole trick-or-treating mm. thing. I no, don't, don't do dress that. up myself. But I use it as an excuse to watch a really good scary movie. (laughs) So that's what I love Halloween for is just an excuse to put on scary movies. Not that I need a reason, but I feel like I'm less judged by people who don't get scary movies (laughs) for watching a horror movie. And this time around, we certainly watched a fantastic horror movie. Yes. So Wayne, what are we reviewing? So today we're reviewing 1960s Psycho. Please explain. In order to afford to marry her in-debt boyfriend Sam Loomis, John Gavin, real estate secretary Marion Crane, Janet Lee, steals $40,000 in cash from one of her boss's clients. En route from Phoenix, Arizona to Fairvale, California, where Sam lives, Marion stops for the night at the Bates Motel, where she meets and has dinner with proprietor Norman Bates, Anthony Perkins, whose overbearing mother disapproves of him bringing women into their home. After some contemplation, Marion decides to drive back to Phoenix and return the stolen money in the morning, but as she showers, a figure appears and stabs her to death. When Norman discovers the bloody sight, he panics and cleans up the crime scene as well as disregarding Marion's possessions and body in the nearby swamp. However, it isn't long until there is an investigation into the disappearance of Marion and the money. Norman is questioned by Sam, Marion's sister Lila, Vera Miles, and private investigator Milton Arbogast, Martin Balsam. 
But what will they make of Norman Bates, who obviously couldn't even hoe a fly? Alfred Hitchcock's iconic masterpiece is not only an exceptional example of suspense and horror, but is regarded as one of the greatest films of all time. So Kendall, did you go a little mad for Psycho? I love that question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all go a little mad sometimes, don't we? Yeah, we do. We definitely do. Yes, I did. I really, really liked this movie. I have always wanted to watch it. One thing I need to do is go back and watch more classic movies like this. I spend a lot of time watching film and I tend to stop you know, the further back you go, like 1970s, I don't really go further back, but I should. And I'm really happy that I did with mm. this. A very good example of why they call Hitchcock the master of suspense. <laughs> Absolutely. I love the way it's shot. The score is phenomenal. Mm. Like one of the best film scores I think I've ever heard. Just yeah. creating that atmosphere, the tension. I knew, I mean, I knew the twist. I knew pretty much all the main things that happened in this film because it's so well regarded in pop culture, yeah. of course. But yeah, just seeing it was, it was really good. It didn't drag for me. I wondered, I did wonder in parts where it was going, but I was never disappointed. And the performances were great. Like mm. Anthony Perkins is fantastic. Yeah. So creepy. And I, and I love it. I love it. So I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, you were on board. So Philip, how did you find Hitchcock Psycho? <laughs> so no, so I'm not a huge horror fan in the slightest. Eight Legged Freaks had me awake for nights when I watched <laughs> it as a teenager. I refuse to see things like Saw, jump scares make me angry. Even um, Pirates of the Caribbean when he Jack Sparrow's painted up and he opens his eyes, even though his eyes were painted as if they're open, that made me jump and mm. I got angry at that. <laughs> so it, it doesn't take me much. However, I have always enjoyed psychological... The thrillers, I think, are probably closer to what I've sort of enjoyed. I really enjoyed The Walking Dead um, series. Mm. I really enjoyed Romero's uh, zombie flicks. Mm-hmm. Yep. I love Silence of the Lambs. And I now love this. So definitely it worked on my anxiety, Mm. but that a lot was the music and the suspense. And again, even though I knew the twists and turns, it was how they got there, the details, the nuance of that, that really was super exciting for me with this. Yeah, Yeah, because even for a, a horror movie, there's only two deaths depicted on screen. And, you know, they're depicted in a manner... That you know we would say is pretty light, mm. I suppose, on yeah. blood and gore. Yeah. Yeah. When we've got the famous shower scene, and I'm sure we'll talk about that <laughs> a lot later on. But you know, we never see the knife enter Marion's body. No. The blood is minimal, and even when we've got like a bird's eye view angle, and we see her crouched in the bathtub, we don't see any blood on her body. We don't see no. any stab wounds or no. anything. A lot of it is suggestive. So, you know, I agree. I think it's because it's the score. It's definitely the way it's edited, the way it's framed. Yeah. This movie is really strong on a technical level. Yes. I think we can all agree on that one. Yes. But does the story in itself hold up, do we think? it's We've got a story here that is extraordinarily dialogue-driven for most of it, but I think it's counterbalanced really well by long patches of silence and tension and i think as you've said you know kendall hitchcock is the master of suspense for this reason it's like this push and pull i'm going to make you feel safe 
and then I'm going to put you on edge yeah. and then, no, no, you're okay. And yeah. then I'm going to scare you. So it's all these wonderful filmmaking and storytelling tricks, I suppose, within the narrative itself. So in terms of the overall story, and this probably helps when we break it up character by character, is it a strong story or is it just more paint by numbers? What do we think about that? Probably the only issue I had in the movie was um, Marion's motive for the crime. I didn't fully get until like, you know, a few scenes deep into that mm. of the film and the story just because I, I was like, oh, why did she take the money? Oh, of course, because she wants to help her boyfriend and marry him and all of that. But then one thing that confused me and I thought was strange was when she goes to the car dealership, you know, she's going there. She wants to ditch her car because the cop saw her, pulled her over. Yeah. Noticed she was acting suspicious. And, you know, she, she's trying to do the smart thing <laughs> uh, <laughs> by ditching the car and swapping it out. But then the cop sees her yes. doing it the whole time. He's watching her and she's continuously looking at him and looking at him and looking at him. And she still goes ahead and swaps the car and drives away in the new one. And he sees her yeah. leave with it. So I, I that confused me i'm just like I, i'm guessing she's panicked she's obviously a mm. you know a decent woman she doesn't really do this sort of thing from what the way you, she's reacting you know she's never committed a crime like this before and she's kind of having second thoughts hence later on she says she's going to return the money yeah but yeah still i was just like why why did you go through with that <laughs> well i suppose for me the way that i probably hypothesize it is yes we know that she's swapping her car over because she's committed this crime. And when you change the car, it's easier to get away because yeah. of being identified. But I suppose it would look more suspicious if she drove away from the car dealership with her own car, if she hadn't That's true. followed like, through. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. You um, do make a good point You know, well. she is paying legitimately, well, <laughs> apparently legitimately. Yeah. Yeah. The car does belong to her originally. It's not a stolen car like how the car dealer who is... <laughs> adorable <laughs> um, you know how he might suggest her yeah. story checks out yeah, yeah yeah so i'm guessing maybe yeah following through is probably the lesser of two evils yeah. in the situation phil what did you think well i i feel with that bit mm. especially you saying paint by numbers has made me sort of think of a, mm. a, a grand analogy for this it's almost as if someone's taken a paint by numbers painting mm. painted it up put it in an op shop <laughs> And then someone else has taken that picture and then done their own masterpiece over the top of it. Right. So it's, are you saying like the foundation is very formulaic? Yes. It's something familiar, but there's the, so the, much has been done to it. That's it. It's we the don't care. It's twists and turns that yeah. change it. Uh, okay. And for example, I don't think her motivation, the whole start, it's almost as if they've gone, oh, let's do. I care about the, 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 the killing. I care about mm. the, the this bit, the Norman Bates. Let's just somehow get her there. Uh, she's got money and she's running away. Done. Yeah. yeah. And like even with the cop thing, I sort of sat back, I must admit, after they found out who she was and mm. that she had been there, why was there no mention of maybe the cop calling through and saying, yeah, I saw her in. So there was, it was almost like the trail went cold back in Phoenix. Yeah, it could have. And then, but you should have had this connection between the cop, the highway cop and, and I didn't see that. I, oh, I just don't remember it. No, 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 that's um, okay. It's not that you don't remember it because you're right. It never happened. I have something that might account for that. And I don't know if this is true, but this is just mm-hmm. my very vague knowledge of, 
the legal system in the states but also let's not forget the time that this film was made it was made in 1960 based on a novel written in the late 50s yeah so as far as i'm aware that she's crossed the border right so she's already in california that's where the bates motel is yes the cop that had seen her originally was in arizona State law officials didn't really talk to each other. Your jurisdiction no, you're right. was your jurisdiction. Yeah. So I think that's why the private investigator didn't really have yeah. much information so to at go least, on. At least at that time they, they do yeah. now. But now they do. Yeah. But yeah. Nine, oh, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. It's yeah. just sort of been lost in time. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's the things, culture. you know, sometimes you just go, oh, hang on, it's easy to do this. But you go, well, hang on, what was it like so many years yeah. ago? Also, with your right, Marion's motivations, I almost want to brush it as a damsel in distress, a desperate ploy, because they really do push the fact that Marion and Sam really do love each other, even though he's paying alimony. Yeah. The dialogue between them is just absolutely amazing. What I find quite gorgeous about that opening shot is that we zoom around the city of Phoenix. We, you know, get close to their hotel room and then we go through the window. The camera swoons around the room a little bit. That's our point of view. We're voyeurs into this sordid affair because they are doing it in secret. She's ducking away at lunchtime to have sex with Sam. Mm. Very much a no-no for a decent woman, an unmarried woman back in the day. So we can already see this planting the seeds for what will happen in future slasher films about the immoral girl getting punished. That's what I was thinking of bringing up as well, because while I obviously knew Marion gets murdered in this film going into it, I didn't know she'd done anything wrong. So then as soon as I realized she'd stolen that money, I was like, oh, no wonder she does. Yeah, so, you know, she's (laughs) having intimate relations with Sam out of wedlock. Mm. She's stealing money to be with him, to help him out of debt so they can legitimize the relationship through marriage. It isn't until she has a conversation with Norman about his own oppressed upbringing that she understands, well, he's been trapped in his way, in his lifestyle. I've been trapped in my circumstances. I'm going to fix this by returning the money. Yeah. And it's between that moment and her famous death that we see Norman looking through the peephole. We are now voyeurs with him. Mm. So, you know, we begin the film spying on her he does it too. So we are connecting with Norman in this way because in both circumstances, she's in her lingerie Mm. at that time. It's very clever in terms of how the audience is positioned in this film throughout. You know, whenever they're in public spaces, the framing is quite static. We don't Mm. get the movement of camera a lot. They're very clean, concentrated framing and shots. It's a lot more fluid within motel rooms and bedrooms. So that's what I think her motivation really comes from. I think the the love of Sam and her desperation as well, because she's so on edge the whole time since leaving with the money, is that motivation, whether we really buy it as much. It's like the woman doing everything just for love. I'm not sure if we would buy it now, but back then I think it's actually quite convincing. I think it's portrayed convincingly. Both actors are just absolutely stunning. And Marion and Sam have an exchange that I think is one of the most romantic exchanges in cinematic history when she wants to talk about running away and getting married with him and he's kind of like well no that's not realistic you know we're in our own little shack and i'm stuffing envelopes with alimony checks and what are you going to do 
you, you know, are you going to lick the stamps? And she just looks at him and says, I'll lick the stamps. Yeah. Who would have thought putting stamps on envelopes could be so romantic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that line alone, like, yes, Marion, I know why you're doing this. That's really nice. Maybe I'm just very old fashioned. No, no, <laughs> but I love that. It's very sweet. I love that so much. Yeah. After saying that, yeah. I maybe controversially, I don't think that Hitchcock is actually the best. Mm-hmm. At dialogue. I think he's... I mean, obviously, he's much of suspense. Mm. I think his framework, his his camera work is amazing. And so, to me, when you have the, this brilliance of everything else, mm. for me personally, and of course, this is coming from a guy that has written a handful of plays, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the dialogue is noticeably lesser mm. And I think that again, I'm not saying it's shocking, it's terrible, it's yeah. you know, the room, but it's definitely not as on par with the rest. Like with the, the visuals style. It, yeah. It. And it's only noticeable to me because everything else is so perfect. Yeah, so, so spot on. Joseph Stefano wrote the screenplay based okay, on Robert yep. Bloch's novel. Yep. So in terms of the dialogue, is it more a reflection on Joseph Stefano's writing or the way Hitchcock handles the scenes with dialogue. Knowing that, I'd have to say that it's Joseph Stefano. To me, the actual dialogue just doesn't sound on par because I have to say that the acting, the performance was up there with the suspense, the, yeah. the film, the you know, camera work, etc. Okay. Kendall, what did you think about the dialogue? No, I didn't. I, I liked it. I, I didn't really see too much of an, an issue with it. Especially the, you know, the dialogue that they gave Anthony Perkins to deliver, I think is incredible. And what he did with it, like, really elevates it to a different level, Yeah, I think. I, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't really see anything. But I can kind of see what you mean, just because it's, it is very different the way he shoots the dialogue scenes as opposed to the suspense mm. scenes and all of that. I think what it is for me, it's... It's like they've got these islands of great dialogue. So, mm. like those little monologues and those little yeah. back, the back and forth between Norman Bates and Marion Crane is is beautiful in in the the, the dinner scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you've got other bits where it just feels a bit clunky and a bit expositiony. Yes. And a bit sort of like that whole rehashing of the story so far, essentially, where yeah. they're telling the detective mm. what's going on. Well, yeah, and then that's actually kind of how I felt about the ending. Yes. Because uh, the way the film ends. Yes. Yeah, is, yes, definitely. It's a bit they yeah. kind of over Explain it. And I wonder, is that because he knew the audience of the day needed a little bit of help because this is something that is so new? Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, um, Philbin Kendall, I actually agree with both of you in terms of the ending when the you know psychiatrist is explaining Norman's condition and how things went down. And I've myself also find that a bit over the top in terms of exposition. Oh, yeah. But... I forgive it because I'm like, okay, well, this is 1960. Like you said, Philip, all of these are quite new. You know, it's even acknowledged in the film. People who have mental health problems are just gone to some other place, i.e. facilities where they're forgotten about. So I forgive it for explaining it almost like you're explaining it to a fifth grader, for example. But I feel like the audience at the time needed to be walked through it. No, that makes sense. That makes you sense because you, because you know, as contemporary viewers, we yeah. wouldn't, we we wouldn't need that kind of exposition today. Yeah, 
and we we wouldn't like it so that's why we're sitting here discussing it's not mm. needed but back then yeah definitely so, yeah i agree it goes on for too long yeah. but i'm happy to forgive it based yeah. On the context, yeah. because even the suggestion that Norman Bates was a transvestite, which is an outdated term, but it is the term they use in the film, yeah. is put out there. Mm-hmm. And then it has to be dismissed to then explain why this isn't so yeah. and to explain the dual personalities, I guess, to get behind his motivations as well. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Uh, speaking of motivations, I wanted to say, do you think Marion and Arbogast were murdered because they upset Norman or because his mum mm. was upset that Norman was, you know, you know, spending time with a pretty woman yeah. and then Arbogast just happened to be caught up in yeah. the investigation and so he means to an end. So according to the psychologist at the end, it yeah. was, or psychiatrist, sorry, it was that second one that supposedly the mother half of him yeah. was jealous. Yeah. yeah, and she was um, always present at yeah. some level. So I think Marion dies because... Norman is attracted to her. And we see that very early on when he goes to grab the key to the motel room. He originally goes for room number three and then decides to go to room number one because it's closer to the office and where his people is. He is attracted to her, is really, you know, pushing for dinner and so forth. Yeah, of course. Um, Wants to take her back to the house so that's a more homely and domestic setting, but then the mother objects. So the mother is very judgmental of Marion. Yes. Just as I suppose a society would be, you know, having pretty girls back into the house and she's like, well, no, not, not that woman at all. So that judgment is there. The mother then wants to get rid of Marion because she's a threat to their relationship. And I feel that Norman goes into the house to protect his mother from the PI. Yeah. But then because it's the mother who kills the PI, she's once again protecting Norman, I suppose. Yeah. Protecting them. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the yeah, because the reason I, I I understand all that, that makes yeah. sense. Um, it's very well explained, of course. But it just seemed to me every time, like there was a couple of times where, during conversations mm. uh, with Norman had with, you know, the two victims, there was a bit of a conflict that would happen yeah. where, you know, the person would kind of insult him yes. without meaning to and then the conversation would kind of end after that. Yeah. And then, so that kind of made me also think maybe that's a reason... And it, that he did kill them, but yeah, but it, it does make sense that why because of you know he was attracted to it. Yeah, and look, it possibly could have a little bit of that in there as well. Remembering we're talking about someone with psychological uh, yeah, issues, because unless that was maybe that was just there to to help reinforce the yeah. fact that he's not quite right. Mm-hmm. As I feel within the realms of the universe, in the realms of the actual movie, it's just as simple as what the psychiatrist is saying. Mm. Yes. Um, but within the realms of, you know, our reality, someone like that, you'd almost say that the murderous side is only the mother, so he can only murder mm. as the mother. Yeah. Yes, because yeah. Norman is an innocent boy. Yeah. You know, not, not even a man, let's face it. He... He has a lot of childlike I mean, yeah, mannerisms. Sure. I love this the way he's just 
eating candy from a bag when the PI is there, when he tells the wrong story and is caught out and then backtracks and he stutters and mumbles. We've got that moment when the PI is looking through the register of guests and the camera is from a low angle and we just see the bottom of, you know, Norman's chin and so forth. And he's like, oh, yeah. Like, it's just a very innocent thing. I like that shot. Oh, it is just so beautifully framed. You could almost say, if you wanted an example outside of this, Mm -hmm. it's similar, I feel, to how Batman, the, the comic strip Batman, uses a character... Um, called Puppet Master mm. and oh, Scarface. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Puppet Master is actually this weedy, yeah. scared elderly man who has Scarface, his little mobster puppet. Yeah. And the little weedy man, generally speaking, doesn't kill anyone. No. But his puppet does. Yeah. So he is actually, in this psychological sort of uh, debate... The puppet master is actually innocent of mm. all the murders because it's always the puppet holding the gun. Yeah. Um, now in Batman, that sort of it, it's it's questionable whether this is a psychological thing or whether this is the puppet's actually magic. Yeah. You know, so, but Batman always keeps it ambiguous. But it's a similar sort of thing here. Oh, the exactly. mother is the murderer, so yeah. Norman Bates is always innocent. Yeah. In that psychological side of things, yeah. and I think the Norman's innocence and childlike behavior and mannerisms and nervousness and jittery and, and like hey you said Kendall, you know he when, he when he's insulted it you know the, the conversation changes or yeah. it, it stops abruptly or he gets quite defensive you sense that he can't stand up for himself mm. so his mother does it for him yeah. um, and i think the analogy used philip is absolutely spot on in terms of relating it here but let's go a little bit closer into norman bates and the incredibly brilliant Anthony Perkins. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so yeah. the overall character of Norman Bates is actually based quite loosely on a real-life criminal called Ooh. Ed Gein. Oh, I've heard of him. Yes. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing his surname correctly, but his crimes influenced Psycho, the original novel, and thus the film as well. It also was an influence behind two films from 1974, one called Deranged with Roberts Bloom and one of the most famous horror movies of all time, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yes. So all of these stories are based on Ed Gein, who did use you know, like mummification and, and body parts and things like that. Admittedly, Norman Bates is a lot more pared back <laughs> than The Muse, which is quite alarming. Uh, but we get hints of this about... Norman's talents, if you will, with that fantastic conversation about taxidermy. Yeah. Because we learn by the end of the film with that incredible and very famous plot twist, well, he's used those talents to preserve mm. his yeah. mother as well. Yeah. Uh, birds feature quite heavily, I suppose, as, as motifs and, yeah. and symbols throughout the films. I think even with Norman saying to Marion, you eat like a bird, very peckish and, and very small bits and pieces mm. together, and then corrects how, well, it's not really a true saying because birds eat a lot. Mm. I wonder if that is a reference. And of course, Norman doesn't know this, but you know the, the hidden meaning behind that is that Marion is greedy or selfish. She's stolen money. She's doing that for her own gain. Yes, Sam is involved too, but she's really driving it forward because Sam's dismissed the idea of them being together because it's not possible. Mm. 
And then we've got birds watching always. You know, there's always somebody watching Marion, I suppose. And to some degree, there's always someone watching Norman too, his mother ties into this voyeurism and then we've got the simple bit of taxidermy as well it's what is done to preserve her just amazing scene (laughs) other than the obvious does hitchcock use birds in other movies like as a motif is that a thing sort of like i don't no i don't believe so i feel like obviously the birds which is the obvious form you're relating to but they're also they're more used as i suppose the villain of of the piece i'm just wondering if like vertigo and other movies that he's done uses birds at all? Or... No. I mean, I'm trying to think to Vertigo. I feel like yeah. there is a, a bird in a cage somewhere, but I don't think it's a heavy... I don't think... I don't, I've, seen, I've seen Vertigo. I don't remember any heavy yeah, bird references. Yeah, I don't think so. no. I think I was wondering that too, though. Yeah, I think the bird in this example, and who knows, it could be in the original text. I'm mm. not too sure. It's a way of introducing yeah. the idea of taxidermy. But also, I suppose, while I know I've said that Marion being selfish and so forth and, or t- being greedy and eating more than what we think that birds, you know, do, that she's also, I guess, fragile and has almost mm. this innocence or beauty that birds do even when they've been stuffed with sawdust. Because he says, oh, you'd never stuff animals X, Y, Z, for example. Dogs but you know, cats. Yeah, but birds are different. And he's yeah. l- linking that yeah. to her. He says beasts. Yes. I wonder if that specifically that word is. Yeah, it could be. And it could be that he just really sees her as this beautiful creature is reiterating how beautiful she is, but Mm. there are more layers to her. And I love I I love how in depth he goes with explaining birds and and then says, But I don't know anything about birds. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things that's like it's the one thing he knows about, which is taxidermy, but then he wants to still be quite humble Mm. about it as well. It's very endearing, it does go along with that childlikeness of him, I think. Yeah, yeah, I can't praise Anthony Parkins oh, enough for this. Know. You know, you said before, Kendall, you know, the performances really elevate, say, some of the dialogue and feel, I don't know if you feel this way as well, maybe when the dialogue gets clunky, at least there's such great performances to deliver them with confidence. I feel that Norman's dialogue is actually always on point. I don't think they're yeah. too heavy handed. And it does have a lot to do with the way he's directed and that performance is one of my all-time favourite performances. It yeah. It is and I, so beautiful. I don't understand how it, he didn't win an Oscar for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like a crime to me. Yeah, not even nominated. No. no. But, I, but, like, he's just uh, just completely chilling and un- unsettling. Just, like, you yeah. know, even though, like, you probably suspect from the get-go that he's, like, the people who are going in not knowing the yeah. or whatever... You probably suspect from the get-go there's something off. Maybe he did do... Maybe he has done this, but... Because mm. you just... You, there's no way you can, like, look at him and watch him and his mannerisms and then just the way he speaks and the the moments he chooses to smile at, mm. at, at certain things. Yeah. And, and then I part of me really kind of w- wanted or, or wished that we got to see him actually use the mum mother's voice because you never actually see him on camera give that because obviously they've used an actress i think yeah they've used Um, two women and one male to to do the voice yeah Yeah. but just i love just that end scene he doesn't even say anything he's just hearing the voice of his mum in his head and then that 
freaking that smile on his face is just oh. it says everything and i freaking love it yeah it's absolutely it's perfect incredible yeah, yeah. And what's so brilliant about perkins is that yes he delivers dialogue exceptionally well mm. but it's also those lengthy moments when he's not saying anything, like when he's cleaning up the crime mm. scene, for example. Yeah. Just, and you know, and this is some of the stuff that you're taught in film school. Yes, show, don't tell. This film does both. Mm. <laughs> a yeah. lot. It tells a lot. It shows a lot. And arguably, if it was made today, you would be editing a lot of that showing and a lot of that telling to make it a bit more pacier or punchier. I think so, you would. But yeah. I, I wonder if it the film... It doesn't need it. it the film would it. suffer from it. No, because yeah. yeah. I, I found myself wondering that at certain points, mm. whether or not the pay, there was an issue with the pacing. Yeah. And I was like, no, I think it's I think it's going along just fine. And mm. even though, like, they, you know, Hitchcock did decide to spend a, a fair chunk of time watching him clean up the mess yeah. and taking away her body, like, that was, like, 15 minutes probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, felt it. It felt it. Yeah. But you're totally okay with it. Absolutely. He's captivated. He mm. absolutely the whole time. is. Yeah. Like, Philip, what did you think of Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates? Yeah, I really liked the performance. And definitely, I think if you did it today, I feel you'd have to edit it down. But oh, yeah. it's beca- not necessarily because of what we think. I actually think it's because the way we train actors these days mm. is different. Mm. Back then, it was a lot more of a theatrical mm. training, theatrical background. Yeah, even by the 60s, they'd started to learn how to do TV and movie acting, obviously. But you had audiences that could be captivated like that. And again, I'm not trying to say, oh, you couldn't do it today because... Yeah. But I don't think actors today, through no fault of their own... No, no. ...are trained to be able to do that and you as know, easily. You need people that have got a lot of experience. And also I feel it's that the audience's expectations have mm-hmm, changed. Mm-hmm. I don't think audiences would be patient enough. Mm. So I think this is why I'm really okay with older films because I grew up watching a lot of older films. And you just understand the era that these films mm. are made and you have to sort of watch it, I think, with that mindset to get the most out of it. Whereas I think today these bits would be trimmed down because audiences would be like, okay, I get it and move on yeah. type thing. But Tarantino spends just yeah, long stretches of yeah, dialogue, long stretches of, of movement and things like that. Which is interesting. My partner's father mm. is a huge Tarantino fan. Yeah. And has been talking about how he's just not sure about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because of the scenes where it's just you know someone just walking down the street and then it cuts to the next whatever yeah and it's interesting hearing that from him because he's the sort of person that talks about how much he loves the the, those sort of scenes in other tarantino movies which is really fascinating feedback because and not to take too much away from the film we are discussing Mm. but in terms of that tarantino is representing a style from the era the film is no, set. 100%. So, yeah. you know, so whether it's a contemporary film set back then or it's a film from back then, we accept it, don't mm. we? Yeah. So with Norman Bates himself, you know, we've talked about the plot twist as well, or we've at least alluded to it, that Norman and Norman's mother are one and the same, if you will. Yes. So, Kendall, you already knew that that was the, the plot twist going yeah. into the film. Yes. Philip, you've not seen Psycho before, mm. but did you know of that plot no, twist? I knew roughly of it. I knew at the end the mother was dead. Yeah. And I'd sort of, I've seen that little scene. I, where the chair turns around? Yeah, where the chair yeah. turns around. I, I sort of knew of it. Yeah. I, I'd not seen it before, but I knew that was a 
thing. Yeah. I just wasn't sure how it worked, especially mm. to be honest, there's a couple, there's a scene or a couple of scenes. I can't remember exactly where, but you actually see Norman off one side of the town and then some, or one side of the, the hotel. And then someone goes in, I think like when the detective goes in, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. And I could, could be a hundred percent wrong here, but I thought I saw them show Norman off, one side of the hotel, mm. and then next thing now, obviously, he's up there. Yeah. Now, obviously, that's just him knowing how to get up there quickly. Yeah, round the back, for example. That sort of that sort of uh, red herring. Yeah. Throw throw the audience off. I think is really smart. Yeah, yeah. I think so too. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's a really clever plot twist and would have been one that would not have been really seen before in cinema Um, and yet again explains why there is a lengthy exposition afterwards to to sort of see through but I think it's really clever I think you don't see that coming as a first-time viewer and even when you know the local cop and his wife are are chatting to to Sam and Lila about Bates and that his mother had died for example you go well Okay, how does that work? Because mm-hmm. you know that the cop himself said, "Who did we bury? Like who's yeah, buried it. in yeah. that?" Yeah, yeah absolutely. We actually, have more of a thought of, "Ooh, yeah. they've killed someone else." Yeah, and... how does this all work yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, very good red herring. Yeah. So, in terms of Norman Bates himself, we've got a representation of poor mental health. Yes. Here, so I suppose the closest that we could probably link it to is schizophrenia Mm. and i think in one of the later psycho films which we'll touch upon a bit later i think it is actually established that he is a schizophrenic so that's not established here in this film but how do we think or feel about the representation of mental health because it's not really used so much to explore mental health but it's used more as well this is the reason why Mm. Yeah, it's tough because, like today, it actually—I th- I think there's even a more specific term, but it would be labelled essentially a uh, split personality disorder, schizophrenia. Yes, yeah. yes. It's, it's hard because, yeah, back then, on one hand, the movie sort of takes a stab and a swipe at asylums, mm. at, at in the institution. He's I, very defensive of he's it. He's very defensive. Yeah. He's very saying, and he's it's. Almost like the the movie's telling the audience, hey, we still do this horrific thing. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's shown that... um, It's actually interesting because the psychologist is actually a lot more sympathetic to the whole thing without outwardly saying, oh, it's not his fault, he's... he's, well, let's, uh, let's, be honest, let's be honest, you would you would hope a psychologist or psychiatrist would be, yeah. you know, sympathetic based on <clears throat> that. We're, we're in the same era where they were cutting bits of people's brains out and zapping them to see whether they could yeah. jolt people back into... I mean, this is the era of electrotherapy. Yeah. I yeah. mean, uh, Clockwork true. Orange is based heavily around exactly what's happening in this era. I mean, let's think about it this way. The psychiatrist could just be excited because he's got a, a, a fascinating well, yeah. patient yeah. to study. That's what, true too. what I find really interesting is that that outstanding final scene where the mother is doing the voiceover and we see Norman reacting, I suppose. Yeah. Or really, by that stage, it's fully the mother, let's yeah. be honest, yeah, you yeah. know. that's true. But I love how she betrays Norman. Yeah. She's like, no, they're not going to put me away. He's the one who did it. Yeah. So it's now flipped 
to mm. what you know the psychiatrist is saying mm. she's like no no it wasn't me it was norman he did this all i'm innocent and all that they're going to try to pin it on me but it's 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 not going to happen and i find that really interesting because she has a fear of being put away mm. we yeah. see that when norman objects to the idea of putting the mother in a home when mm. marion suggests it and also, when he says to his mother, I'm going to put you in the fruit cellar, yeah. she yeah. objects the whole way through. Yeah. Yeah. She has a fear of being locked up. Mm. And I just love that at the end, that fear overcomes her. She betrays the maternal instinct to protect her child by actually throwing him under the bus. Mm. I find that really fascinating. Yeah. The it two is. personalities are so distinctive in that mm. moment. Yeah. So brilliantly played it's, by all concerned. Oh, most yeah, certainly. For sure. Yeah. It's definitely interesting, especially to see a movie in done in the 60s mm. showing this. I've got ADHD, and I know full well that even in the 70s, I would have been locked up by now, and it would not have been understood. How do I know this? I have an uncle. Oh, sorry. Great uncle, my grandmother's brother, who was actually locked up. Oh wow! Because of ADHD. Back then, they didn't call it that. They called it a disruptive disorder or something like that. Yeah, uh, it would have been very confronting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, he was actually locked up multiple times mm. for it. Wow. I know that I would have been. Yeah. So to see a, sh- a movie, even though it's the villain, still not. There is actually a very sympathetic lean towards. Norman Bates and he is so likable that's it like yeah. we know what he does what he gets up to and what's going on we get mm. an understanding of what's going on but again it comes down to Perkins he is just so damn likable yeah he really is you know you wouldn't you really would believe he wouldn't hurt a fly yeah <laughs> you know you yeah. really would believe it but Perkins is not the only outstanding performer in this film I feel so we've got Janet Lee as Marion Crane yes so She's the ultimate red herring in this film because we feel like we're following her all the way through. We do. And she's cut down about what, half an hour into the film, I'd say. Yeah, half an hour, 40 Some minutes. Yeah. yeah. So what did we think of her, I suppose, as the uh, catalyst for this story? Yeah. I think I remember either watching or reading something about how people were very shocked that she wasn't in the movie much at all because she was kind of billed as this, yeah. the lead. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, and, you know, you were really lulled into a false sense of security. Mm. And then the fact that she's, yeah, just killed off so bluntly. But her performance is wonderful. I really like her a lot. She's very good at being, <laughs> playing someone very suspect <laughs> <laughs> and not being able to keep her cool. But She has an amazing um, face, doesn't she? She's gorgeous yeah. face. Yeah. Beautifully expressive. Very uh, yeah. expressive. Those eyes are something else. Yeah. Really nice. But yeah, I no, I think she does a, a wonderful job with what she's given and I enjoy watching her. It was a yeah, shame that she, you know, isn't in the whole film. Hitchcock actually had his lockout policy for this movie. So once the movie started playing, you are not allowed into the cinema. Oh. Now the main reason for this was because you're right, Janet Lee was billed in yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And he didn't want people coming into the movie. And then not seeing her at all and thinking, hang on, Mm. where is she? You lied to me. So cinema operators were a little nervous about doing this sort of lockout. They're like, well, we're going to be losing money if we're not letting people in even once the film has started. But because the lockout policy was so emphasized, people (laughs) came early and queued to make sure that they would be admitted on time. So it actually was a wonderful publicity stunt. That is great. Yeah. Philip. 
the world's most famous shower victim. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think of um, Ms. Lee's performance? Well, her performance actually, for me, rolls back into what I was saying early on about mm. how I think the dialogue can drop a little bit. Yeah. And to be honest, I feel the movie doesn't start until she gets to the Bates Hotel. Mm. So with that in mind, everything on from that, her whole thing in the Bates Hotel is magnificent. Yeah. I do think she does a very good job of looking suspect. And I don't think, again, this is where I was trying to differentiate between the dialogue, the writing, and the actual performance. Because her performance of said dialogue is brilliant. Mm. But it, again, comes back to the whole, why would a cop see someone acting so suspicious and then just sort of let them go? And then there's, and yes, state lines and stuff. But that whole sort of thing, for me, again, in... You know, in the year that we're in, in mm. the country that we're in, yeah. it, it, it's a little jarring because of that. Yeah. But to me, it she really took off in that last, whatever, what, what would that be, 10 minutes? Yeah, it, it doesn't <laughs> feel that long, does it, in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in that last bit, when she gets to the hotel onwards, she's absolutely amazing. And she yeah. does a very good job with everything else. But again, I think it's just the stuff happening around her that took me out of the experience. Yeah. Again, that might maybe just be a cultural thing. Yeah, I'm could not be. sure. I but think... I couldn't doubt the performance. No, she is no. so good. Yeah. And I think I just love her scenes with John Gavin who played her boyfriend Sam Loomis so much they had really nice chemistry they had outstanding chemistry yeah. and I think I'm with them from that get go I, oh, like, yeah. I love the exchange between them in the mm. hotel room during her lunch break I just it's just so I believe their relationship mm. I believe they genuinely love one yeah. another yeah I was gonna say on, on that though I believe it too but then at the end when him and her sister learn that she's actually dead. Mm. We don't really get much of a reaction from them in no. terms of grief or or upset. But I'm I'm guessing that's just the intent of the film. Yeah, I suppose because the focus is more on, on under, understanding yeah. what he's done. Yeah, I yeah. also yeah I feel that's because the movie does suffer a little bit for the era. You see a lot of movies that are like that as well, where some of the the directing has sort of been like, no, 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 we're here now. Mm. We can't deviate. Yeah. Whereas for us, we're used to emotion and yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. something really being raw on camera. Yeah, and I suppose also uh, Lila is the one who expresses the most emotion in that moment she about does. just, you know, confirming, you know, so is she really she, yeah. rah rah. Yeah. Also when we think about the era, men don't cry. Men don't cry. So that's Sam yeah. is holding it's, it in really his, yeah, his resolve. Um, yeah. Also you could argue that maybe he's holding it together because there's still this mystery going on. I can't do this yet. Yeah. It could be that maybe he's sort of he didn't expect her to come back. Yeah, maybe Possibly. they'd already had, you know, yeah. self-convinced. That yeah, or, or even before that, he yeah. didn't actually expect her to be coming down with said money or whatever. He mm. he was caught off guard, so maybe he's already sort of said goodbye to even the notion of them being in a relationship. And if I if I may be a little bit cynical, but just thinking of the time, it could also be that by the time we've got that scene and that explanation in the courthouse quite a bit has happened. So they have discovered Norman's mother's corpse, for example. Mm. He's restrained Norman in the cellar. So maybe he's putting 
piece by piece. He's putting it together mm. because men are logical that way, yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas a woman needs to have something explained to her. Yeah. Again, I'm being quite cynical, but just mm. thinking of the era, yeah, that could yeah. possibly be why it's played out that way. Mm. Yeah. But even even with all that, sort of going back to the idea that back then men don't cry mm. versus what we have now. I mean, even something like what we were given in the MCU is a lot more than a lot of other movies will allow. Well, yeah, we need you know I mean? characters yeah. who actually have depth and are multidimensional. Yeah. yeah. And that, that sort of emotion is has even been a big thing within modern movies, within our blockbusters, yeah, let true. alone other sort of movies. I think we expect it, though. We want well, our we characters to have these human relations. Yeah, Again, we want to connect with them, relate yeah. to them. But it's only been... What I'm trying to say is it's only really been, I feel, in the last 10, maybe a stretch, 20 years that yeah. we've been getting that. Well, it does depend, I think, on the genre. Oh, definitely on it the genre, It depends yeah. on the era yeah. and definitely depends on the audience. And I think they all align better these days, yeah, I yeah. feel. And it depends, yeah. like how we're saying, what, you know, is the purpose of the scene. Like how you said, Phil, you know, we've sort of moved on to that already. Mm. Um, yeah. John Gavin as Sam Loomis. I really like him. him. He's a handsome fellow, isn't Very he? handsome. Very man. handsome. I don't think he's given enough to mm. play with. No. But for what he's given, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's very kind of old fashioned, though, in the way he speaks. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the way he delivers his dialogue. It kind yeah. of, sometimes for me, it almost doesn't match up with how he looks. Yeah. Because <laughs> he looks very young and, and sweet. And sweet and attractive and charming and all of that. And then he speaks very, yeah, a lot more mature than what he appears. But yeah, I really enjoy watching him for yeah. sure. And how about the uh, private investigator, Milton Arbogast? So Martin Balsam played yeah. him. I just love that scene that he was interrogating Norman and they were looking yeah. over the register and things like that. I just thought, I don't know, I just love the way it's played out. I love how you've got someone who's a bit old school and this kid who's wet behind the ears. You've got somebody who's really sharp and who's catching out this jittery person. I just, yeah, yeah that scene was my favourite. Yeah, and he's delivering it in such a, a nonchalant, like, yeah. relaxed kind of way, kind of just... He's manipulating Norman yeah. to try and get mm. something out of him. And I just love the way he's doing it. And he seems so at ease and so sure of himself. And it's, it's really nice. Yeah. After saying that, and look, this probably wasn't a tropal cliche back then. Mm. But he does the thing that always annoys me with sort of police or whatever. <laughs> go into the spooky place. Go into the potential murderer's place without backup. He's yeah. even on the phone and you hear him go, no, I'll go by myself yeah. or whatever. It's like, no, nah, she'll be right. Yeah. It's like... Oh, just call for backup. I don't care if the entire squad gets killed yeah. for the purposes of the movie. Call for backup. But in his defense, <laughs> yes. he makes a point of saying in the movie that he's a private investigator, not a cop. That's right. Yeah. There is, he has he, no who backup. Was he? Doesn't he? Because I thought he was talking to someone on the phone. Well, he was, was talking, the phone he's talking to... And he um, insinuates that he... No, nah, I'll go by myself. Yeah, because he yeah. wanted. they wanted to go with him, yeah. I think. Lila and Sam. Lila, Lila oh, and yeah. Sam. Especially Lila. She yeah. was very, very keen to go to the house and yeah. find out. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll retract that then. That makes, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I, I mean, thought he was talking to someone else. Like he no, yeah. he was talking, he was talking yeah. there. Because yeah, remember, okay. she, she goes on to say that, you know, he called, he called and said uh, that yeah. he was going to go. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, he That's is, right. he's though very much of that mold. Yeah. But look, he does go into the spooky house. Yes, mm-hmm. he still does. Yeah. He still does. <laughs> he climbs those stairs. Mm-hmm. Now, his death scene is actually quite interestingly done i feel yes so we get mrs bates who comes out 
and slices him across the face. Yeah. And he has... It's just filmed so... I'm just fascinated by the way it was filmed. Yeah, me too. It's very interesting. The way he falls back on the steps really slowly and, and, you know, and it's just sort of done that way before being actually killed after that. Yeah. Yeah. I've not really seen many films do say a fall down the stairs that way. No. Yeah. Did, did it work for you? No, that's, no. Well, that's interesting thing about this. And I don't know if it's just because it's films of the time. Mm. Uh, As I said at the top, I haven't really seen a lot of films from this age, but just, the handling of violence mm. and the way it's shot is really interesting in this film. It's done very different because not just it's not just his falling down the stairs that's interesting. It's when uh, Sam and Norman like initially come to blows. Yeah, and it's it's there's a bit of an awkward kind of fisticuffs depicted on the camera and then you know Norman whacks him over the head and takes off yeah but yeah that's another you know and then also with the Marion's death scene which is done a bit better I think but yeah I don't know I yeah it's very weird I don't know if it's just that's just so like that of the time you don't want to be too traumatic with the depiction of violence on film because this that was a very sensitive era for all of that kind of mm. stuff. I mean, you know, hello, the, there was a controversy because it was the first film to show a toilet flushing. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, so maybe that, I'm thinking maybe that's the reason why we didn't actually see a stunt double tumble down the stairs or yeah. anything. They just kind of made it look like he floated eerily down. Yeah, it probably but, was to, to have that angle. So it's like the mother's point of view yeah. of watching him fall. True. Probably you know, makes it scarier because we're actually seeing the face. We're seeing the blood well, it is, splash. It's definitely effective yeah. in that sense because it does kind yeah. of very much unsettle you because you he's very terrified yeah. as he's falling. It's know? an interesting choice, you feel, in yeah, terms it, of the Yeah, definitely choice. interesting. Yeah. Phil, yeah. what did you think about um, Milton's death? Yeah, I... I... You see, I sort of see it the other way in the sense I don't watch a lot of horror. Mm. So if you compare that to an action movie where they're having fights and stuff, Mm. where you actually, the camera shakes a lot. You actually don't see many of the punches and stuff connect. You don't see much of the actual No, you see no connection. That's it. But I also have to accept that I'm pretty sure most horror movies these days you see the knife go through the body and yes. the yeah. spurt. And yeah, you see everything. So, or if you don't, it's because it's that the imagination can do better than the... Yeah. So, yeah, I think it does suffer a bit from its censorship laws and what they thought they could push and get away with. Yeah. I feel... This is an interesting thing. I feel these days, if he were alive today and were to be someone would be like hey let's make one last horror movie mm. i don't think he'd bother because i feel he uh, is the sort of person that liked to push the boundaries and liked to really be smart and all that about it but today it's sort of there's no boundaries to push well, or, or if there are it's more about let's, how much gore can we put in how yeah, much well, maybe it's harder to get the audience to react. really be effect, affected your reaction yeah yeah well yeah maybe that's why i'm mm. finding an interesting kind of take on on the depiction of violence in this film is because you know I will comfortably watch a movie like Saw yeah. and be okay with, you know, severed limbs and, and, <laughs> and viscera and guts and mm. all of that junk because I've I've just mm. seen it now. So the, the mold's been broken. I, mm. yeah. There's no threshold anymore. So mm. maybe that, I'm guessing that's probably got 
definitely would have something to do with why mm. that would be a bit jarring. Or... Yeah, and we also have to think that Psycho is one of the earlier examples of a slasher movie. That's yeah. true. So the slasher subgenre hasn't really been established at this stage. No. It was not the first that we would call now a slasher movie, and it would take until 1974 before the slasher genre was really born through mm-hmm. Black Christmas, a Canadian yes. film yes. Uh, with Margot Kiddo yes. in it. I need to watch it. Yes, a great film actually. Oh, good. And it's kind of like, okay, what are the rules here? So we do notice, mm-hmm. like we mentioned before, we never see uh, the knife enter Marion's body, for example. We don't see it slash Milton. This is all suggested. So all the violence, yeah, is framed in a way where it is suggested mm. and it's left to our imagination yes. leaving things to the imagination is something that hitchcock did do a lot yeah, he loved yeah. playing those visual cues and tricks mm. so i'm sure anyone who had seen psycho back in the day before people like us decided to break <laughs> scenes apart and overanalyze them <laughs> yeah. would be like oh my goodness she got stabbed so many times and there was blood yeah. everywhere and things like that but it's a very for today's standards extraordinarily tame scene there's there's no blood whatsoever compared to today no today you would have an episode of csi yeah with a pool of blood that they they lap up with (laughs) with an instrument and pour into a vial meanwhile there was just a bit of chocolate syrup just sort of (laughs) going down the drain yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely so a few i guess discussion points or just fun facts about hitchcock's psycho as we're wrapping up our halloween special Mm. today Look, it's it's a significant movie in terms of film history, in yes. terms of the man of the genre. Yes. Uh, it did mark a bit of a difference from Hitchcock's previous movies. So, for example, this one was a pretty low-budget film, so it was made for around $807,000. Wow. It was also in black and white. Now, he had started in the silent black and white era, so he had made them. Yeah. But prior to this, he'd made North by Northwest, for example, which was in colour and quite flashy okay. and so forth. Yeah. I wondered about the choice of doing Psycho yeah. in black and white because yeah. I was think- watching it and thinking... But well, there were a lot of colour films being made at the time, yeah. so it's an interesting uh, choice. Yeah. So it probably was just something he wanted to make, like a, a quick, low-budget movie. Because yeah. he didn't even use a film crew for this. He used a TV crew. Oh. So hmm. people whose experience was in television. Wow. Yeah, so you know, if you wanted to look at the, the, the rankings or the hierarchy of, of motion pictures, you know, film tends to always trump TV. But for a feature cinematic release film, he used a TV crew. Wow. The critical response to this was a bit mixed, so not everyone loved it. It's funny to think about it, considering how revered it is now as a film, but it wasn't always received quite warmly. It had a huge box office return of about $50 million, and it got a lot of praise in international markets. So with the box office return and international critics really praising it, American critics then decided to reevaluate. They're like, okay, hang on, let's have a look at this one. It was also nominated for four Academy Awards. So Hitchcock received a director nomination for this. Oh, good. um, For the black and white cinematography as well, the art direction and set decoration for black and white. And Janet Leigh was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar. She did not win that one, but she did win the Golden Globe Award. So it's great that she got that I don't think we can really deny that this is a horror masterpiece and, you know, precursor to the slasher genres we've mentioned already, which is pretty cool. One of the greatest films of all time, before we go into final thoughts, because we've got a few more talking points, but we're ready to maybe classify it as one of the greatest films of all time, do we think? At least on a technical level? Yeah, Yeah. definitely technically. Yeah. I mean, I I, I wouldn't be far removed from saying it is one of the greatest. Mm. I 
I still haven't seen Citizen Kane. So, um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> it's definitely yeah. one of those ones that if you removed it from history, it would leave a devastating impact. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, for It's sure. sort of like the movie Yesterday. Now, I haven't actually seen it, but the basic premise, the Beatles never existed. Yes. Yeah. Now, again, ha- not having actually seen that movie, I must admit when I see the trailer, I go, yeah, but, because you remove the Beatles, it changes music history entirely. Yeah, yeah for sure. Either someone else fills the void early on, or we're still listening to rock and roll country, <laughs> early blues. Yeah, yeah. No, no, so I, I think it's you're the right. same with this. If this didn't exist, I'm confident that we'd be a decade or two behind where we are with horror movies. Yeah, and just the art of filmmaking In to general. begin with. Yeah. yeah. So those opening titles. Oh, they're great. Yeah, so Saul Bass did those. Yes. I just, I love them as well. Yeah, yeah. I love how it's accompanied with Bernard Herrmann's score. That's such an iconic score. Yeah. And I, it was really nice to hear it fully in its entirety in context of the yeah. film. And I love that we're introduced to that score from the get-go. And also the way all the words sort of slice yeah. um, amongst one another, like they're being sliced yeah. with a knife. It's so cool. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing they're great to watch yes they are in black and white but they're just yeah, fantastic matter, yeah. Hitchcock didn't want the psycho music at first okay the ching 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 he yeah. wanted it silent composer did the music and put it to the film and then Hitchcock turned around and said yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> those famous violins oh, yeah yes. absolutely so the score is so iconic mm. but what's also great is when it's not used yes so those moments of silence mm-hmm. are just incredible and tense and then there are also moments when it's used that you wouldn't necessarily suspect so for example you know when marion's driving away from the cop after being pulled over it sort of hits into there really intensely mm-hmm. when she drives away from the car dealership these are really interesting choices. Yeah. But yeah, like Kendall Hay just said, you know, it was great to hear it in full in the whole mm-hmm. context of the film. Yes. I mean, clearly, it has to be one of the greatest scores of all time. Yeah. Would we have to I, say. I agree. Yeah. I definitely agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of. One of. Yeah, um, oh, definitely one of the greatest. Not me, but yeah, one yeah, of. Yeah, it is so up there. And it's yeah. like all the greatest scores, it's quite simple. Yeah. Mm. But it is so effective. And it's synonymous with horror. With, yeah. with thrills and with scares, definitely with stabbings yeah. <laughs> as well. So that shower scene, and we've talked about it early on, uh, it's interesting to compare to how that reads in the original text. Yes. So in the original text, uh, Marion's actually beheaded yeah. in wow. the shower as opposed to like the repeated stabbings, oh but gosh. she's actually beheaded. Uh, so they chose not to do that <laughs> this time around, <laughs> and probably for some of the reasons we were talking about yeah. before, you know, yes. censorship, it might be too full on. Yes. But I, I think leaving things to your imagination, less is more, mm. definitely worked for this film, mm. I would say. Yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. also say for someone that hasn't seen the whole thing right through, for me it was also interesting to see where the actual music starts and stops, mm. because... If you watch, for example, the uh, Simpsons parody yes. of this, the music goes right through that scene, including watching the blood go down the <laughs> yeah. thing and the eyeball the bit. Yes. Where here, the music actually stops 
essentially after the stabbings. Yes. You don't hear the dum-dum, no. dum-dum happen while the blood's going down or the eyeball bit. Mm. That's all in silence. It is so beautifully well, framed. You hear the, the water. Oh, you do hear the water. The only yes, 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 sound yes, yes. you hear is the water. Well, yes, yes, yes. And that's what I love about it. Even when she enters the shower and starts it, there isn't any music. You hear that really aggressive scrunch of unwrapping the, the soap. And yeah. it's oh, just so incredibly done. The yeah. music kicks in when she's getting stabbed. We return to the water. We get this consistent visual cue of circles, the shower head, the bath hole, her eyeball. Oh, the, the panning out from her eye. I love it. And do you know what I love the most? <laughs> the panning out from her eye, we see water drops near her eye now yeah. these are from the shower but it's like she is crying, crying. yeah absolutely amazing yeah i've incredible. always wanted this is now an ignorant side note of a beginner uh, director yeah i've always wanted to know how they do those sort of scenes because i'll tell you now if i were acting that if, if i if it was an actual body yeah the actual actor my eye would be darting all over the place. You'd see twitching. You'd mm. see. So, are they using a dummy, a mannequin, or is it no, the actual actor? And they're like just so her. bloody good. It is an extraordinarily talented oh. actor. Yeah. Um, and also, <laughs> one does sense that actors were a lot more disciplined back then. Yeah. yeah. Probably. A lot yeah. less spoiled. Yeah. You know, yeah, I think that's so. True. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and some, and also when you've got a director like Hitchcock, who has a vision and infamously was not that always the nicest to his leading ladies especially to get what he wanted i think you will do your best not to dart your eyes around or to twitch it at all and it just comes across so beautifully so yeah i feel like you said you know it's paid homage to in the simpsons Mm -hmm. that's when maggie hits homer over the head with a mallet yes yes Uh, but the simpsons itself uses a lot of references and parody to psycho and you know why not? It's so ingrained in popular culture. We've got Principal Skinner and his mother Agnes. There's a lot of references yeah. there. Uh, there's one scene where he's just sort of looking out to this house that we know isn't the Skinner's residence, but it looks like the Bates home. Yeah. And Skinner is just having this conversation with his mother. <laughs> this one-way conversation. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. It's great. Um, and, and I think I was going to say the one where like the the uh, violins and the bus yes. going away. You hear the score coming. Like. Yes, because Homer's just seen a billboard that says die. He freaks out. The wind blows. It actually says diet. He he um, screams even yeah, more yeah. because that's horrible. Yeah. yeah, those scary stories are always fantastic. Oh, amazing. Yeah, um, and that's, I think, how you know how you've made it into popular culture. For it, sure. Psycho is referenced just about in, in any sort of franchise. It's even referenced in Police Academy 3. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know you've made it. Yeah. And in terms of the genre itself, it heavily influenced that subgenre of slasher films. Friday the 13th, part one and two, famously oh, homages yeah. slash rips off. Um, <laughs> Psycho, yeah, both in the, sure. in, nine, in the 1980 film and its sequel in, in 81. Uh, there's clear homages there, uh, so much so that in the original Friday the 13th, they even use the Janet, they call the character of Annie the Janet Lee character. So <laughs> it begins with the red herring. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we've got the mother-son relationship of there course, as well yeah. that really drives that story forward. Yes. Um, would we say this is Alfred Hitchcock's best movie? Well, as someone who hasn't seen all his films, I can't mm. for certain say, but 
it's definitely for me I think it's heralded as one of his best if not his best and mm. I I'd be pretty confident saying it's his best film yeah. I think so it's definitely his most well known definitely his most famous uh, absolutely most famous I really enjoyed the birds so yeah. I need to watch the birds <laughs> yeah. again that's a nice psychological mm. sort of thriller but yeah I'd definitely say if we if we're talking about how much of an impact it's truly left I'd say it's got to be his best film yeah so for me the birds is also up there I think this pips it just that little bit in uh-huh. terms of, of, of pacing and performances. Yeah. Uh, I feel in one of his early silent films was called The Lodger, which was a, a kind of like a Jack the Ripper story, if you will. Um, I think Vertigo is overrated. Please don't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, but it, like a good film nonetheless. Um, yes. Dial M from Murder is absolutely outstanding. He's got such a great assortment of films, but there is something about Psycho that just ticks all of these boxes in terms of filmmaking. Yeah. I have to say it goes from the technical elements of the film and Anthony Perkins as well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. After Hitchcock's death, um, we then get some Psycho sequels and the franchise Oof. continues. Okay. So Psycho 2 was released in 1983. Mm-hmm. Anthony Perkins reprised his role as Norman Bates for that one. Oh, wow. Perkins then directed and starred in Psycho Part 3 okay, in wow. 1986. Yep. And there was also a telly movie in 87 called Bates Motel. We've got Psycho 4 The Beginning, <laughs> which was a 1990 sequel prequel. And Henry Thomas, best known as Elliot from E.T., actually played a young Norman Bates. And Anthony Perkins reprised his role as Norman Bates again in the present day scenes. We've got the 1998 remake as well. Quite controversial because everyone's like, why would you make a remake of Psycho? And it's almost essentially a frame-by-frame remake. That's what I've heard. And so part of me kind of want to want, wants to watch it. I think it's on either Netflix or Stan. Yeah, it's widely uh, available. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely uh, gotten some bad reviews for performance-wise, I think. Some of the, the cast didn't just hold a candle, <laughs> um, sadly, because Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates, and I love Vince Vaughn, but yeah. So I think I'm definitely going to check it out just to compare and yeah. hopefully not have a bad time. <laughs> no, no. I have to say, I've out of all of the incarnations and, and sequels and so forth, of the Norman Bates story. The remake of Psycho is the only one that I have seen. Okay. And I have to say, it was the movie that made me fall in love with Vince Vaughn as an actor. Oh, wow. So, okay, cool. As I, now, I've praised Anthony Perkins a lot, and rightly so. Yeah. You cannot uh, reiterate how brilliant this man is. Mm. Vince Vaughn makes it his own. Okay. And does an extraordinarily good job at it as well. Oh, okay, So cool. I actually am not offended by the Psycho remake as some people some are. Some people really are. So, yeah, n- not at all. Okay. Um, more recently, we've had the TV series Bates Motel. I really want to watch it. Yes, which that is probably the one that I'll go to more, I, I think. I think I'm definitely going to yes. watch it now. And that's yeah. more of a prequel to the events yes, that happens um, yes. in this movie. So, like, look, Psycho's had such a huge legacy, and we could talk about it for hours and hours and break <laughs> down every single scene and frame. Mm. But I think it's time now that we head to our final thoughts and a score out of five. So, Kendall, yes, really, mm-hmm. are you a little mad for Psycho? <laughs> yes, I am a lot mad for Psycho. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, very, very glad that I've now seen this movie. Really, really enjoyed it from start to finish. 
just reiterates to me why I love horror so much. Just because it contains such good suspense, even though I knew going in what the Hmm. twists were and everything and who dies and all of that. It was still remarkable to see how it unfolded on the screen and just the performances of the cast and uh, like... Yeah, again, Anthony Perkins just, you know, deserves everything for this performance. And I kind of want to watch Psycho 2 and 3 now, just mm. and even 4, because he's in all of them, just to see how those performances and those films compare to this one. But yeah, no, I... Yeah, this is a, an incredible film, definitely one of the greatest ever. I'd probably give it four and a half out of five. So, Philip, a boy's best friend surely mm. is his mother. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you give Psycho? Yeah, so throughout this this podcast that we we do, I have realised more and more that I've got to stop doing the whole. Oh yeah, I've I've seen that. Sure, yeah, mm. <laughs> and getting by on what I know, because I'm finding that through doing that, I'm missing out on some absolute gems of movies. Um, so I feel that now I have to start really embracing the fact that, yes, I've seen very few movies mm-hmm. that people say, oh, you meant to see that, and just accept that. I'm going to cop that. What? <laughs> Why haven't you seen that? This has been one of those movies that I keep saying, oh, I really should see that. But mm-hmm. when people ask me about it, oh, yeah, sure, you're psycho, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I'm glad that I've finally seen it. Yes, not a fan of horror, but... As I sort of said at the start, this is that psychological horror that I love, that I just absolutely dive into because it isn't about the jump scares, it isn't about the the gore and the horror, it's about the trickery of the mind. The acting, the, the, the scenes, I mean, these are scenes that you could take a screenshot of, put it in a frame and hang on your wall. Oh, almost. Yeah any scene within it yeah a movie like that to me deserves five out of five well phil i agree with you and kendall i agree with you too (laughs) that this absolutely is a phenomenal movie and yeah one that definitely i think every film buff needs to see and i'm glad that all three of us have experienced (laughs) together it is aesthetic perfection. I think from a technical angle, if you're a filmmaker or a budding filmmaker, this is a movie you have to see. It is required mm-hmm. viewing just to see all of the wonderful tricks that Hitchcock does to tell this incredible story. Yeah, look, might be pretty simple in terms of its structure and its narrative and some of the characters get more fleshed out than others. That's just details because <laughs> the film is just so strong it is compelling lengthy moments of dialogue are captivating lengthy moments of still action if you will are absolutely engrossing the film works for a number of reasons it is that incredible score it is masterful directions and it is a young man named Anthony Perkins who delivers one of the most fascinating, charismatic and engaging performances of any movie in American film history. Five out of five. (laughs) Well said. (laughs) Thank you, Wayne, for showing us that movie. Thank you. You're more than welcome. (laughs) Thank you all for listening and we hope you have a spooky Halloween. <laughs> yes. I've been a Philip Hunting. I've been a Kendall Richardson. And I've been a Wayne Stellini. And, and you've, you've just, just experienced, experienced Fred Watch. Watch. Cue music. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
Shut up, Philip! Back in the shower! Actually, thinking of a story though. No, um, I don't want it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, so, Wayne, what is this week's story? No. no. <laughs> In order to afford to marry her in debt boyfriend, Sam Loomis, John Gavin, real estate secretary Marion Crane, Jeanette Lee, steals. F- no, it's Janet Lee. Yeah. In order to marry. Ugh, hello. <laughs> Take three. It's all good. Yeah. You're all good. However, it isn't long until there is an investigation into the... De- wondering if, like, Inferno and uh, Poseidon... Is that him? No. No? Who's no. Poseidon? Doesn't matter. That's Owen Allen. Uh, Vertigo, is that what I'm Vertigo, thinking of? Yeah. Yes. After saying that, and again, this probably wasn't a trope or a... Uh, uh, um, sorry. What do you call the thing when it happens a lot? Cliché? Thank you. Yeah. Like all the greatest scores, it's quite simple. Yeah. But it is so effective and it is just, oh, what's the word? Synonymous. And Henry Thomas, best known as Elliot from E.T., oh, no actually played a young Norman Bates. Oh. And Anthony Hopkins reprised his role again as Norman Bates, sort of in the in the present day scenes. Anthony Perkins. Damn it, I was so good. <laughs> oh. Sorry, I just... No, thank you, because yeah, I, I would have shot myself otherwise. <laughs> thank you. Oh We've gosh. got the infamous mm. 1998 remake of Psycho. Yes. So, Kendall, you have seen that one, haven't you? No, I haven't actually. I, I, let me I, ask I, it again. Oh, let me ask it again. I thought you had seen no, it. No, I haven't. Oh, I thought you said last time you'd seen the remake. No, Sorry. No, oh, okay. I won't do that to you then. Okay, no, cool. Okay. And Phil, you haven't seen it. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I just wanted to include you. <laughs> um, Sorry, I'm about to ask you to do a quick rundown of uh, two and three. So <laughs> I've not seen them, so don't oh, ask me. Yeah. Thank you very much, Wayne, for uh, that movie. Yes, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you all for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful Halloween. Thank you, Wayne, for showing us that movie. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you all for listening, and we all hope you... One more time. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) Thank you, Wayne, for showing us... I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know and they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly.